Hello, I'm Ray Cross from University of Maryland. With me today is Maria Brew from the University of Miami, and we're here to talk to you about ulcerative colitis. So Maria, when you see patients in the office and, and they're about to initiate new therapy, how do you engage them in the conversation to help them select medications? Sure. Well, obviously a lot will have to do with how sick the person is, but assuming that this is a typical ulcerative colitis patient with you know mild to moderate symptoms, um, I always start by saying that there are always choices. In life, there are always choices. Um, I do try to make it clear without fear-mongering that this is a disease that they'll, that they'll have until we find a cure. Um, the younger they are, the more I, I try to emphasize that maybe there really will be a cure you know, in, in their lifetime. Um, that, um, that fortunately, at least for mild to moderate disease, the medicines that we have are safer than a lot of things that you can buy over the counter, you know, so that I can start having that conversation about emphasizing how safe um, mesalamine-containing products are. And, um, and then I say that, that generally these medicines work well. You know, we all know that, that about 80% of the time they're going to get significantly better and or be completely in remission and have mucosal healing. But those are concepts that I think, um, you know, I, I wouldn't introduce at that juncture. Um, I, um, I try to explain that this is, you know, that, there, that there, there has to be a commitment to taking these on a regular basis. Um, fortunately, um, I believe that, that mesalamines as a group of medications can be dosed once a day. Um, the studies are clear that multiple day dosing is not as effective, but I suspect that it really is about people missing doses rather than that the drug is not effective taken multiple times in a day. I still find people on it, though, multiple times in a day. I'm sure you do too, mm -hmm. right? You're asking me about the new patient, but I'm, I'm going to tell you that for, mm -hmm. for our kind of tertiary referral practices, we inherit people on these, and I feel so badly that there are still people out there that are being given TID dosing of medications, and, and that's needless. So I say there's got to be something you do every day, once a day, mm -hmm. and whether that's flossing your teeth in the morning or at night, putting it in some place. I actually kind of micromanage them and try to get them to think through what their strategy is going to be of where they're going to put their medication so that they don't forget that. And so, um, and then I, you know, I, I choose, um, I think that the mesalamines as a group are all about as effective one mm -hmm. as the other. Um, if I have, uh, if it's a virgin patient, then, you know, again, I think that, that I would pick something that is as easy for them to use as the fewest pills possible, uh, because that can also be another psychological impediment to taking the medication. Um, for all intents and purposes, though, I think for the first line therapy of a mild to moderate patient, including for those with distal colitis, I use oral medications. Mm -hmm. uh, only in people that are sicker that I really am, am, am worried that the in urgency or incontinence or tenesmus is beyond what just an oral 5-ASA might do. I, I wouldn't necessarily use topical therapy because I think that that is, again, psychologically a little off-putting for patients. What, what about you? Yeah, I think I think especially for I think especially for men, they're less compliant. Trying to, you know, we know that there's evidence that combination therapy is better for distal colitis, but I think for men especially, there's a lot of resistance to use topical therapies. And I frankly asked them. I said I'll tell them that it may give them relief from the rectal yuckies, that horrible tenesmus, and and offer them topical therapies right. or even try the foam products, right. which sometimes are better tolerated. But I'd say it's about 50-50 as yeah. far as patients willing to do that. Some are just dead set against it and are not going to use a topical therapy. Right. And that's good to know because then moving forward, you know that that's yeah. not an option. Um, you mentioned 
We talked about once daily dosing for five ASAs. Are you, do you give, does it depend on who you give once daily dosing? Are you giving everyone once daily? Are you converting the TID patients to once a day? Well, for sure, I'll start with the end. For sure, I'm going to convert the, the one that's taking it three times a day to once a day. I do, by way of full disclosure, I think when people are sick, I still like the idea of having them do it twice a day um, because I do think it's theoretically possible, even though there, I, I can't show you any data, that if you have something that dissolves, that requires a certain pH to dissolve, as many of the five ASAs that we use do, that if something has gone awry and people have rapid transit, that maybe they might miss that entire dose. And so when they're sick, um, I often will do it twice a day. Now, in fairness, the reason that I think it's okay to do that is we know that if people are sick, they're reminded by their own illness that they need to take their medication, mm -hmm. right? That the issue is really when they're well and they're in remission, that then it becomes easy to forget to take those medications. And so I think I'm okay, you know, doing that. And so I think that for at least the first month of them taking it, taking it twice a day isn't such a big, you know, such a big sacrifice. And then once they're in, main, in that maintenance phase and once a day, I think is really very a very good option. Do you, when you're initiating treatment, do you make a distinction with patients between induction therapy and maintenance therapy, or again, does that depend? Um, well, I, I it, if it's a really a virgin patient, I, I don't want to discuss, give them TMI. So I don't know that I'm going to be going very far down the path. I always say, you know, the first goal is to get you better. We can discuss how we're going to keep you well sort of a next visit and make sure that they're out of the woods. Because if they haven't crossed that first threshold, even though we might define them as mild to moderate, a lack of response to whatever we've decided mm -hmm. to use really now kicks up kicks it up a notch, right? Mm -hmm. Kicks it up a notch right. because if they're not responding then we need the next conversation will be about adding something else, right? And so let's cross that hurdle. After we cross that hurdle we'll discuss maintenance. Um, again, in this non-scientific way, and you know, I, I really want to hear what you think about this. I kind of view it as if I could, if I spared them steroids that time, just barely, like you were really mm -hmm. kind of like you're just as very close to sort of, you know, sending a, a, a you know a, through a, through Epic a prescription mm -hmm. to the pharmacy for steroids. I think those are patients that I would tend to keep on maximal dose five ASA therapy for at least six months especially again, a virgin patient, a new patient, really trying to not set that, set the wheels in motion for these you know, kind of recurrent uh, flares. Because I think with each wave of a flare, you run the risk that there's gonna be extension of disease that it may mm -hmm. become more severe. So I might say for six months, you're stuck with the, the maximum dose and we'll negotiate later lowering that dose. And then what if it's a simple, easy peasy to get better quickly, then I think sooner, you know, whenever they're really out of the woods, I would have them experiment by going down, and I give them I give them a range so that they have control over what they're allowed to do, um, and what the minimum number of five ASA pills or dose is that I want them to go no further down than this, mm -hmm. uh, and and then I also. Uh, I'm explicit that if you start seeing that there are days you're seeing more mucus or you're having some sense that the urgency is coming back, you have my permission to go back up to the full strength and do that for at least two weeks before you try to lower it again. So I, I give them some parameters for how, how they can regulate their 5-ASA dosing. What, what do you tend to do about that? Well, it's, it's funny. It's funny you say about that mild to moderate patient trying to not let them graduate to moderate to severe. Right. So I agree with you. I try to do everything possible to sort of keep them there and keep and control the flare. 
Um, you know, I was sort of, there's two schools of thought with the maintenance 5ASA. Some say the dose that got you into remission, you right. keep it there. Others are sort of slowly de-escalating therapy. And I think the data is pretty clear that really the maintenance dose doesn't matter so much as long as they're taking it. Yeah. It's clear that they're getting 80% of their meds in or more, they do well. So the dose is probably less important. Um, I love the self-management concept. Um, I think once you've had a relationship with a patient, you followed them for a period of time, and they've had some little bumps, little mini flares, and you've adjusted, you can sort of teach them it's okay to go up uh, 1,200 milligrams on your oral 5-ASA or to add your canassa suppositories, and you have my permission. Just tell me what you're doing. I want to know, but it's okay to do it. You don't have to wait a day to start your treatment, and you shouldn't wait a week before you do anything. You should start it, you know, get it treated quickly. I believe that the sooner you treat a flare, the better your outcome's gonna be as opposed to waiting with symptoms for a month or two months. And then I think the flare can get really severe and hard to control. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. And actually, you're making me think about the analogy. You know, we know now that at least in, in biologic therapy, that it might be that we need very high doses to start and induce remission, especially in ulcerative colitis, but that once they're in mm -hmm. remission, we can back off. And I think we could draw perhaps that analogy also to the mesalamines. Yeah, I was reading an article for, um, from Laurent Bogerie yeah. about cancer. Yeah. And one of the concepts he was talking about in de-escalating therapy, which I really liked, was he called it heal and run. So you hit them really hard with aggressive therapy, and in this case it would be aggressive therapy for mild to moderate and then slowly de-escalating yeah. over time. It's a really nice concept. Yeah, I agree. Speaking of risks, let's just say in general, how do you communicate risk to your patients? How do you talk to them about risk of therapies? With five ASAs, they're really safe, yeah. so it's not as big an issue, but when you're graduating up, how do you talk to them about risk? Right, right, right. Well, I think, you know, just to sort of say about the mesalamines, um, that they're so safe again as I you know I try to make the point to them that it is like taking a vitamin and that if it was you know if, it, if we could all take it it probably would be healthy for our colons anyway um, and those are the patients that at least every six months I just want to make sure they have a renal function make sure they're not the person who's developed interstitial nephritis and is asymptomatic but having renal disease. Um, I think for the, for the other medications, um, I, I always try to start with the positives and you know, explain how all the, the upsides of therapy. Um, I then tell them uh, you know, about the risks. I, I do you know, try to keep it like Corey Siegel has taught us in units mm -hmm. that, you know, like always consistent units with respect to the risk of various things. I um, always say to them, I know that if you haven't, you'll check with Dr. Google and all you'll find mm -hmm. out is about the risk uh, because everyone is just posting you know, the, mm -hmm. the risk and that even the pharmaceutical companies are obliged to really emphasize the risk because they're, they're bound to, you know, legally to, to tell you everything that could happen, but that these things don't happen. So I, I first tell them the, the risks. I then tell them my own experience and how how I can count on one hand the really severe complications I've ever had from any of these medications. Uh, of course, these are ones that, that you remember, but mm -hmm. really it's actually the denominators, thousands of patients. Now, I'm embarrassed to say that because I, re I recognize that you know I'm a scientist and I should be thinking about the data and the data are, are clear, but I think it gives patients um, peace of mind, I, I think, to have them hear it from me about mm -hmm. my own experience, because mm -hmm. I think that's why they come to people that, that are are presume, presumably have had a lot of experience with IBD. Um, I also like to pull up the Corey Siegel like um, 10,000 people mm -hmm. chart 
because I think that's very compelling because, you know, again, it really shows you very pictorially what the risk is and, and I think is very reassuring um, for patients as they embark on this. What, what other resources? You talked about Dr. Google and trying to, they're going to go there anyway, right. but what other written resources or what websites you're referring patients to? Are you using a physician extender to sort of help educate your patients either at that visit or in follow-up? How are you sort of supplementing your discussion with them? Yeah. Um, well, I, I actually do a lot of the explaining myself. You know, I, um, I've tried the model of having, having nurses and physician extenders do it. Um, I think you have to speak with authority and confidence, and I try to tell actually my mm -hmm. physician colleagues that, that if you're not, if you as a doctor are feeling uh, un, either unclear about the risk or, or actually are afraid of the risk of these medications, you, you, won't, you won't be able to make your patients feel safe. They, they, you know, they can, you're transmitting that energy. And so therefore, I think that a few minutes of our time goes a longer way if we're confident mm -hmm. in what we're saying and confident that these things are safe. Um, so we, um, my, my, I usually, you know, I feel that the web-related resources that I tell patients, you're gonna check with Dr. Google, but let me tell you where I think mm -hmm. you should go, are the CCFA website and the WebMD website mm -hmm. is very good. Uh, but I'm sure you have others that you that you like to... Well, I, I add Mayo Clinic because I think it's a nice yeah. website for patients. Usually those three are, are pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And then we have... Um, University of Michigan developed this guidebook for new patients that introduces them to the staff, the admins, the nurses, all the providers. And when I visited there, they let me look at it and let me borrow it. And so we sort of revised it. And so for our new patients now, we give them a book that has some written educational materials and introduces them to staff and has some general health maintenance. So I should provide more written materials, but I do a lot of what you said. And I think the nice thing in academics is having physician extenders and yeah. fellows is they can gather a lot of the information and really allow us to spend yeah. more time counseling, which is really what they need. Right. Um, so the information gathering someone else helps us with, and right. then we can focus on discussion of risk and benefits. Yeah, yeah, we're working on that. I mean, we're working both on, on the website piece of it, as well as having something that we may mail to patients in advance mm -hmm. of in advance of their visit. We're also working on uh, web-based portals, you know, to, mm -hmm. to collect data on the patients either either between visits or, you know, at, before their initial visit. Um, because we also do research, you know, our patients fill out, when they come, a reasonably extensive questionnaire. Uh, and, and it's good for a couple of reasons. You know, we do it because we're, we're, we're collecting phenotypic data that we use if the patient provides consent to also allow us to do, you know, genetic and immunologic studies on them. But I think it also triggers their memory because, you know, they're, they're oh, oh, yeah, I forgot I had taken X, Y, and Z medication. Oh, yeah, I've got, you know, hospitalized. Oh, yes, this is how many surgeries I've had done. So, again, helps with the discussion because now it's fresh in their mind because their, their, their memory has been, has been triggered by having to fill out this questionnaire. It's a perfect segue. So, in your practice, in your office, are there tips that you give patients or things to help them to prepare for a visit if they're a new patient or they're plan to come in to discuss change in medical therapy? Are there things that a patient can do to make that visit more productive? Well, um, our staff asks them to bring their medical records with them. Um, I feel badly that we, in some ways that we do, because it, some people take it to the nth degree. We've all had people come to visit us with a ream 
of mm-hmm. records, um, and some with tabs, and some you know highly organized, and some with nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe nothing isn't helpful, but having too much. I, I, I mean, I, I'm sure you're very busy too. It's difficult to mm-hmm. you know you know get through that. Um, I tell my fellows, you know, who are often people that are, that are seeing some of the new patients, that what I generally do, especially for the people that are bringing in a ream of stuff, is I, I need to know what is the question now. You know, um, again, they might have had 20 years of the disease and three surgeries, but now we're dealing with someone with three surgeries and, and they're six months post-op, right? So what is it? What is the issue now? Not all the various details of everything that happened ahead of that. I'm not, I'm not saying that... It might not be important in some way, but it's less important than what are we going to do now to prevent the fourth surgery, right? So I often think that the most essential pieces of data are the last imaging study the patient has had done, the last colonoscopy or some endoscopy the patient has had done, the last set of blood work. And so um, if they're reasonably good historians and I have those data, that's probably all that I need to have an intelligent decision about where to go from here. That, so I, you know, this is me many years later of, mm-hmm. of having to do this that I'm not as interested in the, the, all the long, long, long history of the patient and their records. I, I don't. So I agree, Maria. I think that we, you know, when you get these reams of records, it's very difficult to get through and, and we should probably focus patients a little more. You know, we really want your endoscopies, your biopsy mm-hmm. results, any operative mm-hmm. notes. Um, discharge summaries, those imaging, those are, and like you said, recent labs are really what we need. And I find that in clinic, patients do a pretty good job of telling their story to us. Yeah. Their times are off a little bit, but the general Just gestalt good. of what they're, mm-hmm. what's happened to them, they can, they can give that very well yeah. to us. Um, do you ever, do you ever encourage patients to bring a family member or a friend with them when you're doing complex decision making? Do you think that that's helpful to have someone scribing for them? Yeah. Do you find that there's a lack of retention of what you're telling them? Yeah, all good points. I, I don't know when it's someone I've never met. Um, you know, I don't often. I actually think often they do bring people with them, mm-hmm. um, and I joke, you know, uh, because. Um, I, I do it because I, I can tell the ethnicity of the patient by you know how many family members, and mm-hmm. so that's part of you know to lighten the mood. Um, but but often it's more of an audience, so I don't have that that mm-hmm. problem. That must be the demographics of Miami as well. Uh, so um, and so then when I notice, and if, if I'm talking and I see that no one is writing, I'll say I see no one writing. Are you guys remembering all of this? So then I I'll ask them a question. They won't know the answer to it. Okay, so I, I why don't we pull out a piece of paper and a pen? Having said that, the other thing I do is that we have an electronic medical record system. Mm -hmm. We we happen to have Epic. It could be anything, right? Um, I have a dictaphone with that system, so it's Mm -hmm. got Dragon, and I I dictate the plan, right? And then that plan, which I I have told them the plan, and then I say to them, you're going to hear me say this plan again because I'm going to dictate the plan now Mm -hmm. in front of you, and I do. And I said, everything I've just dictated is going to go with you because I can copy and paste it into their after-visit summary. So that helps. I also, of course, smart phrases on risks of anti-TNFs, risks of, you know, of thiopurines mm-hmm. that, you know, that I can auto-populate in that. Uh, so, so, you know, so th- those are the ways that I, I try to transmit the information you know, from that visit. Um, I, I, I tell them up front that there might be typos, because I can't scan. You know, mm-hmm. it, it does it in whatever mistakes. You know, that, it goes with them, but at least they've heard it. They, they've heard it again, mm-hmm. and then they've gotten it in the printout. And I think that that's that's you know I think not the, perhaps the best I could do, but a, a reasonably good thing. 
And your, and your patients that are doing well, yeah. that have been remission for months or years, how do you stress, with, stress to them the importance of staying on medications? Yeah. Well, I tell them this is a little bit like, you know, once you have the diagnosis, it's like high blood pressure. That, you know, that, that you know, you could be feeling well, you could stop your blood pressure medications, but your blood pressure is going gonna, is gonna to go up. So this is something that it's a commitment for, for a lifetime. And I do upfront tell them that the danger is going to be when they start feeling well, that they're going to want to tempt fate by stopping mm -hmm. their medication. And when they have that sensation to want to do that, they should think back to how sick they were and how out of their life they were when they, when they were first diagnosed or when they last you know, did that. Um, I, I do tell them that there's always the risk with flares that it won't be so easy to control you know, the next time, that it won't be so easy to put Pandora back in the box. And especially if someone is only on mesalamine, I try to emphasize how fantastic that is that here they only need this very safe mm -hmm. medication as a vitamin for their colon. So, um, um, you know, so I, I, I try, like I said, to explain to them that we all have our crosses to bear, that if that, that uh, only the best people get IBD, and so therefore, you know, that this is their, their thing and their way to stay well and healthy is to take these medications. So we're going to sort of do a two-part question to sort of wrap it up. So for patients, how do you set an expectation of treatment benefit for them? And then along those lines, what's your target at these at national meetings? Gastroenterologists hear about fecal calprotectin and CRPs and mucosal healing. So how do you sort of have that conversation with yeah. patients? Yeah, well, um, I, m my aspiration for all of them and that I, that I say to them is for them to be as well as they were before they ever heard of this disease, right? So what is normal for them. Um, I do tell them that I don't always get there. When we don't always get there, I think we always then have a bifurcation in that curve of what, what additional things would we have to do to make to lead to perfection, right? Um, I think in particular in someone with ulcerative colitis, uh, it's that proctitis, it's that last mm -hmm. little bit of rectum that can sometimes not heal. And what is very disturbing to patients is for them to constantly see blood. Mm -hmm. right? And of course, let me say that the aspiration would be that they have no blood. But let's say that they're on maximal oral 5-ASA. Then the only, you know, sort of the additional thing that would con continue to be in the safe realm would be to add topical therapy. And so I think it's a matter of finding what's the minimum dose of a topical therapy that will keep them, that will keep them from bleeding or keep them from being symptomatic. It's also sometimes to explain to them that if we've done endoscopy and assured ourselves that there is no other, no other cause, some terrible cause mm -hmm. of bleeding and that it is this problem that they need to be reassured that they'll occasionally see blood, and I'm not saying it's normal, but that this is something that the next, we need to add, we need to escalate therapy to a different class of therapy to have that all go away. Um, and this is the exception. I'm not telling mm -hmm. you that this is sort of every patient and they can be bleeding all the time. I just mean that in that, when we've maximized all the, all the oral and topical stuff, that I think becomes the, the next leap is, is this someone who really needs to be on, and I'm talking about just this little bit of rectal inflammation. I think that um, um, once people are in, you know, once people are in remission, however they got there, it, you know, it, it generally means that they're going to, I mean, we don't, I know very few patients who can stop all of their, you know, have, stop all their medications and be well forever, although, you know, um, I mm -hmm. always think I'm not, 
hopefully there's a lot for me to continue to see. You know, we're not so, so old. Um, that, that, that does happen occasionally, and, and we could aspire to that and work together for that. Um, I also do actually believe in, in, in diet, in, in having a commitment, um, again, to trying to minimize symptoms that might be provoked by diet. I, you know, I don't think there are data to support yet that, um, that a dietary intervention can make the difference between inflammation and no inflammation. But I do think that diet can regulate how often people are going to the bathroom mm -hmm. and how symptomatic they are given the same level of, mm -hmm. of inflammation. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I use the analogy of in our, in our family, Friday night's pizza night, and I, I tell them if you, if you eat pizza and notice that you're having a lot of symptoms, you have to determine do you want to have those symptoms and eat the pizza, or do you want to skip the pizza? So keeping a food diary, exactly right. what you're saying. Um, and then patients often want a specific diet. They yeah. want specifics. And I tell them that from animal studies, it seems that high fiber, if you can tolerate it, is good. Right. Low sugars is good. And low iron, so less red meat. And that's a heart-healthy diet, so you follow a heart-healthy diet, which we should be telling all of our patients anyway. Right. 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 Um, but I, I agree. And then how about how about targets? So clearly you you want to get clinical remission. Yeah. That's clear. And recognizing that you can't get everyone to follow you there. Okay. Um, but in the ones that you get there, are you doing regular CRPs or coprotectins? Are you rescoping every patient after you start therapy at four or six months? How are you approaching yeah. it? Or does it depend? Yeah, it always depends. Um, I, actually, fecal calprotectin, I'm into that now uh, because it used to be not easily covered, right? Mm -hmm. And now Quest and LabCorp do it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I find myself ordering that and now having, now trying to have like a match of ordering it, especially when I'm going to do an endoscopy on a patient so that I know what their fecal calprotectin is given their degree of inflammation. Um, I don't scope everyone. Um, I would scope people that for sure, the sicker people that I've committed to biologics, you know, I'll, I'll scope them generally six months later unless, unless I think that they're not responding and I need to now make the decision about the next tier up. I think that for people that I'm not, that, that, that I've maxed out and I'm not really, based on their clinical symptoms and how the patient feels, willing to go up to the next tier of therapy, I'm not sure that there's really that much of a purpose to looking. You know, other than, of course, satisfying my academic interests. So let me, as an example, they're on maximal 5-ASA. They, uh, you know, they're feeling great. They see blood once a month. They, you know, they, they seem clinically to be well. I don't know what I would change now on the flip side. If they're seeing blood more consistently, they're not willing to commit to taking more than two pills a day of, you know, mesalamine or whatever. Then I may want to do an endoscopy both to look at, how inflamed they are, but also as a proof that, that they're really not, in, you know, have not achieved mucosal healing and that they need to go up on their therapy. So it depends on where the person is on the continuum of medications, whether they're maxed out for that tier of, of therapy, whether or not, you know, I'm only going to do an endoscopy if it's going to change something I do. Yeah, and I think that the, the nice thing about ulcerative colitis, it's much there's, there's a yeah, it's more accessible, and there's a great, there's a much greater correlation between symptoms exactly. and endoscopy. So, if they're bleeding and they're having exactly. diarrhea, you're almost always going to see active disease. And when it goes away, I think the number is something like 10 or 15 percent of patients are going to have active disease without symptoms. And those okay. are sort of the head scratchers of what do I do? Do I do I step up the pyramid? And 
I don't think there's great evidence that stepping up is really going to yeah. improve outcomes. So. That's right. That's right, Ray. All right, Maria, thank you very much for joining me today. I think this has been an excellent educational session. Thank you so much for inviting me.